Hello, I'm Billy Lennon, and you're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm talking with Devin Thomas O'Shea about his piece, Paranoid Reading, Steam Shovel Press and the American Conspiracy Canon, which is a review of Popular Alienation, a Steam Shovel Press reader, edited by Ken Thomas and published by Illuminate Press. We discuss the intellectual life of St. Louis, pre- and post-internet conceptions of conspiracies, and Reagan colluding with the Pope, amongst other things. Devin Thomas O'Shea is a 2022 Regional Arts Commission grant recipient with writing published in Slate, The Nation, The Emerson Review, Chicago Quarterly Review, Jacobin, Boulevard, and elsewhere. He received his MFA from Northwestern in 2018. So another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'm here with contributor Devin Thomas O'Shea, who wrote a piece Hello. called Paranoid Reading, Steam Shovel Press in the American Conspiracy Canon. How's it going, Devin? Very good. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. You wrote about this press, Steam Shovel Press, out of St. Louis, run yeah. by this guy, Ken Thomas, who... Yeah, it's a con- conspiracy theory zine, um, mm-hmm. which I'd never heard of. The piece is fascinating. Um, could you give Could you give us a background of who Ken Thomas is and sure. the founding of the press? Yeah, I had not uh, heard about it before uh, hearing about this anthology that's called Popular Alienation. It's like one of two of the Steam Shovel Press anthologies. And yeah, Steam Shovel was a, like you said, a conspiracy zine, just like an amateur operation out of St. Louis that um, it's interesting because this is like a survey of sort of pre-9-11 conspiracies. um, And Ken Thomas is just sort of this interesting figure because he goes he like comes out of basically the end of the 60s like he is really into Allen Ginsberg and the beat literature and sort of the uh counterculture poets and then transitions into being a conspiracy authority he's a uh they don't like being called conspiracy theorists he's like a researcher right and so there's like this whole scene sort of in the late 80s and 90s where conspiracy researchers are looking for places to publish their work and steam shovel opens up after uh sort of a smaller um magazine goes away uh and they become really influential on like tv shows like uh the x-files or uh ken thomas gets so popular that like he um becomes a sort of punchline for somebody who's doing a lot of conspiratorial thinking um and he goes on like the Kevin Nealon show. I didn't know he had a conspiracy like program, but yeah, he was like a minor celebrity sort of in the 90s there. And when was it founded and when did it fold? Uh, I think that Steam Shovel started in probably in the late 80s. I want to say 88. Um, and then it's the last publication not really sure when it ended um 
because Ken Thomason went on to like write several other conspiracy books. Um, he's got like sort of a big library of stuff and they all have amazing covers of like, uh, <laughs> there's one that I really love that's like, it's got a flying saucer and then like JFK in the car in Dallas and his head is like an explosion of like white light and the UFO <laughs> is like an explosion of light. And um, yeah, the popular alienation one is pretty, pretty fantastic also. Also JFK. It's it is like a wild cover. Uh, I think that he is he must have advised like the cover art himself. Um, so that's like JFK on one side, and then JFK's mistress Mary Pinochet Meyer, who was mysteriously stabbed to death in Washington D.C. Uh, on the other side, and they are bisected by a UFO beam that has Lee Harvey Oswald in the center. Oh, that's <laughs> Lee Harvey like, Oswald. <laughs> I think so. And then, like, there's an octopus on the bottom. It's, yeah, the octopus is great. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> this is kind of random. I was doing a, a bit of research on some of your prior work. Yeah. And I saw you also went on the Truanon podcast. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if there's... Um, and you mentioned that you were, you got into some of the work of Thomas Pynchon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Crying of Lot Forty Nine. How did you yeah. kind of get into uh, this conspiracy world? Um, like thinking about that critically. I think it definitely. I got into conspiracies because of probably Pynchon. Um, like there was. I think I sort of started with the crying of Lot 49, but um, there was just something endlessly fascinating about the way that he constructs novels out of historical material and this sense of like solving a mystery that isn't like a detective narrative necessarily, even though there's plenty of detective stuff in Pynchon. But yeah, uh, there's always just something like really electrically fascinating about there is a truth out there that is being hidden. And if you can pay attention to the symbols and signs enough, you can unravel it. Um, And that works really well, I think, for literature and uh, historical literature like Pynchon. There's just being like reading is sort of an act of paranoia, right? Of just like you're piecing together just like the construction of a novel is like, what if one person was the center of a universe? Uh, each narrative has to be sort of constructed like that. Um, and there's all, I don't know, I got really into a bunch of literary criticism about paranoid reading. And um, yeah, I just kind of followed that. And then there I am also really into history and sort of like the way that we tell stories about history is um, there's a prevailing narrative and then there are all these counter narratives and different alternative ways of interpreting things that happened in the past uh, that I just still am really enraptured by. Um, Because I think, uh, yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about Thomas also, uh, Ken Thomas, is that he comes out of like the counterculture scene where there's this like moment in the 60s that's I think Pynchon is emblematic of where 
things are changing and um, there's so much churning and sort of, uh, you know, possibilities are opening up that weren't previously available and like the hegemonic story is cracking up and that's really terrifying, but it's also like liberating and where the counterculture energy comes from. And then you can like trace Pynchon's work through after Crying of Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow into Vineland and then his later works that are disappointments in the counterculture being diffused and that energy being broken up and dismantled. Um, and then like in the 90s, you get Ken Thomas, who's like, you know, sort of the, before 9-11, like compiling all of these counter narratives and I don't know, it's just like a really interesting historical archive. He's also an archivist, so that makes sense. Could you talk a little bit about how he like went to the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics? A little bit about that yeah. scene? Yeah, that was really wild. I had not really heard about that before, but this is sort of like um, in Colorado, I believe, in Denver. Uh it is sort of where the beat poets end up in the 70s, 80s um, with Ginsburg. And uh, I think Kerouac is there. And also uh, the another St. Louis and Burroughs uh, ends up there mm -hmm. where Ken, Ken Thomas basically hangs out with um, all these guys. And it's sort of like he gets the idea for the Steam Shovel Press from going to these conferences there. Um, and he begins actually popular alienation in the introduction is like, he credits Allen Ginsberg with uh, the founding idea for the steam shovel because Ginsberg um, has a dream that JFK is going to be killed. Uh, it's like, he takes dream journal notes and it's, and before the assassination, there's like uh, a line in there that he dreams that JFK through a hole in the back of his head, death will enter or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so he sort of credits like this, uh, you know, quasi hippie spiritualism predicting the future and just like, I don't know, I think all that stuff is really cool. Yeah, it, it, was, it was fascinating to read about. So is there one particular story, maybe besides the one we touched on, JFK's Mistress, from the collection that particularly fascinated you? Yeah, I really liked the Oregon one. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like uh, Wilhelm Reich is a contemporary or sort of maybe a little younger than Albert Einstein, but around that area, era. And uh, he's a trained psychologist, but he's just sort of a man of many interests. And he, the story goes that Wilhelm Reich was a genius and he discovered a property or chemical or something that um, called organ that violates the second law of thermodynamics and that the government and Einstein in particular, because he was jealous, um, wanted to keep it all under wraps and that there's like this big conspiracy in the scientific community that sort of like the laws of thermodynamics are breakable. Um, 
I don't know what the second law of thermodynamics is, but yeah, it's kind of interesting because then he goes on to say that like organ, this material can be used as like a weather machine that it can like control the weather. Um, and there's like a whole, there's a bunch of different conspiracy theories that branch off of that sort of out of Wilhelm Reich. Another one that we didn't uh, get to include was there in the steam shovel, like you can read it from the first publication to the last. And um, there's one guy who's like, the Shroud of Turin is real. The It's the piece of cloth that Jesus um, wipes his face with, I believe, or is crucified in. It's a, I don't know. It's a piece of I've cloth. I've never heard from, of it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah. It supposedly has something to do with the crucifixion in Jesus. And it's either it like wipes the blood from his side where a Roman soldier stabs him or I can't remember. Anyway, it's real. It's out there. Um, and the one that everybody knows about is actually uh, they carbon dated it. And it said, oh, this is from like 200 years ago. It's not old enough to be from the Jesus's time. And this guy's like, no, no, no. Carbon dating is actually fake. Um, that <laughs> this is the real thing. And then later, another guy writes in and he's like, actually, that other Shroud of Turin guy, he's full of shit. Um, I have <laughs> a real story about why carbon dating <laughs> is fake. So there's like Shroud of Turin cranks yelling at each other in the pages, which is... It's very fun. Yeah, I guess they, they don't want you to know about it. So I, I've no. been I've been had by not knowing <laughs> about it. Yeah. You uh, gotta become a, a shroud head. Uh, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? Oh, do I have a favorite conspiracy theory? Yeah, I do. I I I'm blanking on the name of it, but you know, like that group of Russian hikers mm -hmm. that uh they they went for a hike in like the mountains and like i don't know where in russia yeah um and they all died and just the way that their bodies were dismantled and torn apart it it's it, i don't know how it isn't a yeti that did it right yeah i like that a lot i love um, that there i i guess one thing i'm thinking about listening to you is if one of these conspiracy theories was like proven to be true. I'm not sure mm. how much that would really change, you know, the landscape. Yeah. Um, even if like mo multiple of them were. So I I'm I'm curious with with Ken Thomas, that that being the case, you mentioned that he he was an archivist. I guess like what was his ideological or intellectual project that was that can be abstracted from running steam shovel press or like I preserving these alternate viewpoints. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's like, it's hard to talk about, I think from our point of view now, because we live in like hyper conspiratorial, like a mm -hmm. much more just like violently conspiratorial media landscape of just like QAnon to, I mean, there's just whole um whole areas of like American politics at least that are very, very uh thick into the paranoid 
like everyone is out to get me on the right that manifests in a certain way on the left that manifests uh, differently but like in ken thomas's time before 9-11 the it it seems as though there was just more of a hegemonic view of like you know there's that feeling in the 90s like hey we got it figured out you know american empire this is uh, no more wars. The Soviet Union is over. There's no more red paranoia. Um, so we just get to, you know, celebrate with the Backstreet Boys. And mm-hmm. I think there's always been people like Thomas who were uh, very not okay with like, no, there's no easy sort of um, singular narrative, right? And that there's all of these other counter ideas, like there's another um, pretty interesting essay in there about how Reagan was conspiring with the Pope to um, get rid of the socialist leader of Poland in the 80s. (laughs) And it's like, oh, that sounds like a crackpot thing. But now, I mean, if you study the Cold War and like the shifty things the Reagan administration was up to, it's like, yeah, that's that was probably happening. Like conspiring with the Pope sounds silly, but I don't doubt it. The Iran Contra um, stuff is extremely real, but it starts as a conspiracy theory. Um, my, I also have worked on like, uh, there's an essay I wrote about the atomic cloud studies in St. Louis in the 1950s at the beginning of the Cold War. Um, where the army basically dusted huge swaths of a public housing project called Pruitt-Igo with radioactive material, uh, most likely. Um, but they were trying to figure out what would happen if a nuclear bomb hit an American city and how the population would respond to like atomic warfare. And they covered it up successfully until the 90s when the Clinton administration declassifies it. So there's like, there are, uh, there are real conspiracies and they only get sort of unraveled with time and like different political contexts. Um, and there's always been, I think, people like Thomas who are trying to sniff out the right, you know, the thing that's being lied about currently, the thing that doesn't make sense in the hegemonic order. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, the the big before and after, in my mind, just from writing about conspiracies back when Ken Thomas was compiling these stories and now would be like the Internet. Um, yeah. So how has the Internet changed how we how conspiracy theories spread and uh, how we think about them? Or is there another determining factor uh, about just thinking about QAnon and stuff like that. Yeah, I I think like it's I'm not I'm definitely not the first person to point it out, but I I agree with the idea that like we've entered into like a different information uh landscape profoundly because of the internet, where let's say like if you wanted to keep something secret like the Pruitt-Igo experiments, um, you would classify all of that stuff and embed the study within a a legitimate study and have sort of a secret nesting egg thing of withholding information, keeping it behind a barrier. And now it seems like the strategy is if you don't want someone to know about something, 
saturate the zone with information and then let people try to figure it out and they can't because there's just too much to like okay you know take in yeah have you like come across like recently something on the internet where it's like oh that might be a conspiracy that's true i can't think of one off the top of my head but from your piece i think about how like the government is like publishing like photos of ufos and things like that yeah that's a great example of like that would have blown i mean uh ken thomas is still alive he's in bad health but the ken thomas of like the late 80s would that would have like blown people's minds to think like oh the government is officially releasing images of stuff it says it doesn't know like it's a ufo we just don't know what it is that's a yeah a radical change in like what the hegemonic narrative is um yeah it seems like those lines between like being in the know and being like a blind sheep or it's not as clear cut yeah Um, and then you have like micro communities who think that they're in the know blah 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 yeah it's definitely saturated and more complicated Um, do you know anybody who's like into QAnon? yeah it's a good question i i wasn't gonna mention this but i am now i a family friend of mine was at my house at my my parents house uh like like a few weeks before january 6th Mm. and uh she she had voiced some pretty whack political views like over over the years right and she she's like a very well put together woman stylish like upper class like it wouldn't necessarily make sense but i remember her being like yeah like a month from now dc watch out and i'm just like oh (laughs) Oh. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's going on there what's gonna happen there uh i think she went down there um i don't think she stormed but yeah I, i i guess i really enjoyed what like andrew callahan was kind of doing with channel five before obviously he's kind of gotten shut down you know, some allegations of sexual misconduct came out. Right. But I think that uh, piqued my interest. And some of the stuff that, like, Town Terry magazine puts out mm-hmm. is a little weird, but kind of makes you think. I don't know. Like, But, yeah, I don't know. That that was a funny story, though. That was, that was pretty funny. I think, especially with January 6th, you can see how, like, it is technically conspiratorial thought i mean all of the QAnon stuff i find to be extremely interesting but it is also a political tool obviously that you can rile up a bunch of people who will go and you know do a low-level riot and uh yeah it's a that is a sort of i don't know it was also very just throughout the george floyd protests of uh i've had sort of an eye on, especially here in St. Louis, before George Floyd, Michael Brown protesters who, um, you know, a lot of them end up uh, dead suddenly. Um, There's just a, like, there is a active, like, political tool to conspiracies and, um, 
and the way that they like form mass movements, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we like found out recently that like, oh yeah, the George Floyd protests had just like federal agents trying to enter into protest groups at every possible stage. And everyone's sort of aware of that in the middle of it happening, but um, to get like hard proof of like this person in, I think it was like Atlanta, was a federal agent. You can see her protesting here. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that'll drive you crazy, which is all over pension mm-hmm. as well. That like a proper sort of paranoia about that stuff and awareness of being manipulated. It's very necessary for trying to un- understand the world. Yeah, definitely not as obvious as Steve Buscemi showing up to high school. Uh, yeah, right. Fellow kids. Yeah, um, music band. So you mentioned uh, something about being in the Midwest, being like a good place to keep an eye out. Uh, yeah. On like Langley and stuff like that. Like, is there something, yeah, like particularly Midwestern about this project? I think, yeah, like that was an interesting line from Ken Thomas. He was talking to a uh, reporter for St. Louis Magazine and he was saying that like, such a like optimistic Midwestern thing of like, I can get on a plane and be anywhere in the country for a couple hundred dollars and I can be there in an hour. Um, and that like St. Louis is sort of a place to keep an eye on. Uh, Los Alamos or like um, Area 51 and Langley and, you know, everywhere else. Um, I definitely From the top feel of the arch. From, yeah, literally spying <laughs> from the top yeah. of the arch. Yeah. What do you make of that, of like the Midwest as a periphery with which you can see like the coasts more clearly? What do you think? It's easier to critique something you're not a part of. Right. I'd say that the Midwest flyover country, more generally speaking, it's easier to feel isolated and want to... Like, like feel feel cut off and as you say have that desire to look for that like truth of oneness behind everything I, I mean it makes sense I don't know if I I don't think I can make a coherent coherent argument for it right now but I mean it definitely makes sense and then I had one last question sure could you talk a little bit of I, I was just going through is this about St. Louis more specifically yeah um and that's where you're from and where you mm-hmm. live now Got it. Just like the list of writers from there is insane. Yeah. Like, uh, just could you talk a little bit about like the literary culture of St. Louis? And then if you can, like how Ken Thomas may or may not think of himself within that like canon, I guess. Yeah, I think he definitely, he, there is, um, I mean, this is, I'm kind of a biased source for this, but St. Louis is just a weird place. Like it's in the center of the country. It is Southern and Northern at the same time. It has all this conflicting history. It used to be French and then it was Spanish. It's older than America. It's got um, these blue blood families who have just been around for generations. It's still in this paranoid way run the town. Um, and the literary response 
I think to living here is really interesting. Like I've written about um, Tennessee Williams and I saw that um, in the new territory, like last week. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, there's a, um, there's some evil here in the city that uh, people respond to, I think through art in a really interesting way. Like Williams hated being here because he, this was in the thirties. It was just a very stilted uh, culture, unaccepting, very rigid. Um, but also T.S. Eliot fucking hated it here too. He like <laughs> used to dust his face green as though he was like malnourished and just like yearned to be in England from <laughs> the middle of St. Louis, which is very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just a, it's a strong, there is a strong literary culture, especially around the turn of the century. But ever since then, you know, St. Louis is basically in decline. Um, and then later on, you get like Franzen and um, Curtis Sittenfeld's from here, too. Um, My favorite novel I read this year is by John Keane, uh, oh, Annotations, yeah? his first novel, Annotations. I love that John guy. Keane, that, that guy's incredible. He's incredible, man. Yeah. Also, also so wrote good. a book called Counter Narrative. I know. I was, I literally Yo, was like stay, using that word because it was like, third oh, eye that's open. such a cool one. Yeah. Third eye open. Yeah. Yeah. There's like just a really good, rich, I think, literary culture here uh, that responds to there's, there's just something like deeply evil about St. Louis in, in the center of the Midwest that like, demands you try to figure it out through art i think yeah the, i'm also thinking about the dude with the gun in his front lawn that was a st louis suburb right yeah the, the mccloskeys yeah they're, they're great they're yeah just lunatics but also yeah there's a weird way that st louis continually like you know, re-represents the country. Like it reflects the sort of a lot of ugly stuff about the country. It's extremely segregated. There's a lot of uh, very active FBI branch here. Um, the like, yeah, the McCloskey standing on their lawn pointing guns at Black Lives Matter protesters in a private lane is just like, oh, that was that was the summer of 2020. That's like the most emblematic. Yeah image of it yeah is there anything else or i think that that's pretty good yeah i think we covered it i really enjoyed writing about uh steam shovel and uh i'm a big fan of cleveland review books i think you guys have some cool stuff going on thanks devin i appreciate it we were uh we loved we loved the pitch loved the piece and yeah, definitely, definitely hit us up again sometime if you if you got time. Absolutely, I would love to. I got some other some other stuff to pitch. Great, great. Thank you for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Producer A Live of Cleveland's own Moomin Collective graciously provided the music we used for the intro, as well as the one you are listening to now. We publish reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three to four times per week. We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase print issues and merch 
including hats, totes, and shirts in our online store. I'd also like to shout out all of our amazing editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree DeMonda, Robert Giddings, Alana Pakros, Angelo Maniage, Morgan Ford, Michael Credico, Helen Rauner, Jacob Brueggemann, Philip Harris, Ali Black, Isabel Blakeway Phillips, Eli Scope, and R.A. Washington. See you next time.